Hi, I'm Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, and we're proud to be hosting the 2024 Investor Conference in Melbourne from the 19th to the 21st of May. And we're stoked that Phil, the host of this podcast, is going to be our special guest MC. If you haven't heard much about the ASA Conference, it's a flagship event that attracts around 300 investors and industry professionals, including the Chair of National Australia Bank this year, the Chair of AGL. We have Dr. Sam Hupert, the founder and CEO of Primedicus, and we've also got Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech coming along, along with many others. For a limited time, new members can enjoy special pricing on registration for the upcoming conference, along with a complimentary 12-month digital membership with the ASA. That's two-day conference registration plus one-year ASA membership for $499, a saving of $150. Simply search for Australian Shareholders Conference Register, click on two-day conference non-member, enter the discount code MEM, as in member, 499, the number's 499, so that's MEM 499 to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Nothing can grow fast in the world, lest it become the world. But we all forget that. We all think, oh, wow, this thing is growing so fast. It's so wonderful. Fine. But I would have said the same about Japanese stocks in the 80s. I would have said the same about tech stocks. I would have said the same about the Stutz Motor Company in 1928, which made the sexiest car on the road, the Bearcat. It was a magnificent machine. That company was broke four years later. It was the best auto in the world. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. In this episode, I'm pleased to welcome back investment specialist Julian McCormack from Platinum Asset Management. Hello, Julian. G'day, Phil. I'm always happy to chat with Julian about his unique views on investment markets. We last spoke at the end of March when markets were beginning their recovery. Well, actually, maybe they were still on the way down at that point, but, you know, somewhere around there. And today is December 21, and US markets are making all-time highs with the ASX not far behind. So, Julian, let's talk about the year. How was it for you? Well, it's a very odd year and in a lot of ways, obviously, Phil, it was for everybody. From a strictly investment perspective, it's been an extraordinary year. And let's try and break that down a little bit. When when we talked in March, what we said was bottoming is a process. You know, it's scary. You don't know how low it can go, but having had a 30, 40% correction, you can begin to deploying capital. And you might be down for another 18 months or something, but you've just got to turn that into a process. It's not a point. You're not trying to be competitive and pick the bottom. You're just trying to work capital in so that when things improve, you'll be happy about that in a couple of years. And that turned out to be sort of inaccurate in a way because bottoming wasn't a process. It was a point and and markets exploded up from that sort of late March point. March 23, I think, was the low. That is because of a whole series of factors. I mean, the first is liquidity. So what does that mean? It just means basically it actually means reserves in the banking system 
in a technical sense, but it really just means money. Can we just break that down a little bit? Central banks, that's, what, that's, what hap- that's what's happening this year, isn't it? That central banks around the world are pushing money into the system. How do they do that? So there's a few things going on within that. Narrowly to answer your question, now, I'll just restrict my comments to the Federal Reserve, which the mechanics of its operations I know reasonably well. The US Fed. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so what happened immediately, in fact, even prior to COVID, it actually began in late 2019. There was a few ructions in, the, in, in interest rate markets. And what Federal Reserve started to do was inject liquidity by doing a thing called a repo operation, a repurchase operation. And what that means is banks have a whole lot of government bonds and that, and that is offset in a direct mechanical way, like they're an offsetting account with their reserves. So if the bank wants to put more reserves into the banking system, it can buy their bonds from them or in a repurchase um, operation that, that they actually borrow them. And if they don't have enough reserves, it's the same as them not having enough cash in the system then they have to borrow that cash from someone else. It's a bit like getting caught short when you owe someone some money, you scramble and it affects your behaviour. So that was sought to be alleviated in the banking system. Then the other thing that central banks did was, was to buy bonds. And, and what that's doing is that's forcing rates down. It's putting cash into the pocket of whoever just sold the bond. Are these uh, corporate bonds or um, government bonds? A bit of both. Uh, for the first time in the Federal Reserve's history, To be honest, there wasn't that much corporate bond buying. You know, it wasn't in huge quantities. It was just the knowledge that it was out there that then adjusted the market behaviour of participants. And that had a a dramatic impact on market behaviour. And so what happened was rates go down in a recession in a very narrow sense. They go down on government bonds and they're often forced down by central banks these days, but they usually go down anyway because people want the safety of a guaranteed repayment, so they go and buy government bonds, so the price goes up and the rate falls. Everybody else's capital availability goes down and their rates go up. Right? That's what a recession really is in a modern sense. It's, oh, gosh, I thought I had some capital available to me last year. Now, gosh, it's going to cost me two, three, four times the rate to borrow it or I can't get a loan at all hello, you're in a recession. That's not what happened this year at all. Happened for about a month. Capital was forced into the system and lending exploded in a private sense and in that in that bond issuance, bond purchasing sense. Pretty unusual and also totally different to what happened after the GFC. So bank credit creation collapsed in the GFC. Remember the banks were stuffed? So they weren't lending to anybody and bond issuance fell dramatically. If the world had fallen apart in March and we were saying you want to commit a bit of capital to markets and now markets are back at a record high, what does one's behaviour have to be? It now has to be disciplined in the other way. So people really must be building cash or ha- at least have something in their portfolio, Aussie bonds or, or you know, Australian government bonds or US government bonds or whatever. That's not a terrible idea in this kind of environment, but it's probably early. I mean, these markets look like they just want to run forever. Um, they won't, by the way. <laughs> they won't. But no, but it is. It's it's really the the whole psychology of this year has been so skew if. But um, the market's just 
continue to keep on going higher and higher, don't they? And um, it's really just this liquidity, the amount of cash that you say is being put in the system that's driving it. It is, Phil, but it's a couple of different things as well. Sorry, and I didn't finish my thought earlier on. Thanks for reminding me that liquidity doesn't do all that much by itself. It needs to go along with a narrative. It needs to go along with a with a, a vibe, you know, a story. To, to quote the castle. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that story, I think, works in a whole, you know, layer cake effect. The first is, oh, cool, the Fed's got my back. Uh, central banks have my back. I can buy really without risk. The second is there are all these tremendous businesses that are sort of winner-take-all and will dominate the fields in which they operate. So, therefore, valuation doesn't really matter because – the value of these things in 10 years' time will be immense. So present value, I'm not really that concerned. And then there's, you know, a series of other sort of layer cake effects, you know, so disruptors versus disrupted. And and then there's a bit of a an emerging, you know, ESG, uh, so environmental, social and governance-driven investment and particularly environmental uh, disruption and change, and all these things go together. And the and the classic example of this is is, is Tesla. That that company's done an amazing job, but it's now worth top ten automakers makers in the world combined. It's never been profitable making cars. Um, and it's hitting the um, S and P five hundred for the first time tonight, isn't it? And it's in the S and P, yeah. And and so <clears throat> what happened on Friday is a really good example. So that that stock traded about one hundred and fifty billion in 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 a night Aussie time. Microsoft trades maybe five, mm-hmm. biggest company in the world trades five, yeah, <laughs> and and this did one fifty. So that's that's a whole bunch of things going on there. It's it's index participation, you know, so forced buying by indices. Probably a bit of speculation going on around that, and that that just pings back back and forward often. So uh, you get this huge sort of volume. Is it true that um, Tesla makes most of its money from carbon credits? Yeah, it makes it from emissions credits mm-hmm. uh, selling into the EU. So uh, EU 2020 and the Chinese standard for average fleet emissions dictates the, the, the level of carbon that can be emitted per average car per kilometre. You know, they're, they're the two biggest auto markets in the world. So, so Europe does 17, 18 million passenger cars per year and, and China does about 24 million the states does 16 million. So all big markets, but the two biggest are saying, oh, guys, you need to have this emission standard thing in place. If you can't, you have to, you know, we'll fine you or you can go and buy emission credits from another automaker who's accrued them somewhere. Uh, all of Tesla's cars obviously are electric, so they get this big credit and they can sell that and they've been selling it to Fiat Chrysler. So the problem with that, though, is that goes away because all these automakers have all these models coming out that let them meet their emission standards, uh, and so the value of those credits basically goes to zero in about a year. Um, should and do. is that part of what you're talking about with with ESG? How ESG is affecting the market? Yeah, it is. It is. There's part. Look, the ESG, you know, environmental, social, and governance standards are really good. It's not that there's anything wrong with it. It's contributing to a nonchalance around price that gets very bubble-like. And, I, and that's one of these narratives where people say, oh, look, you know, I want to go and buy something that solves the plastic crisis or, you know, something that gets rid of uh, the use of crude oil or whatever. And so they'll probably go and buy a basket of stocks in an ESG fund or an ESG ETF or 
And so what you get is this real crowding type effect into stocks that are perceived to be winners in that regard. And then you get, you know, unanchored from price and that's definitionally where you get bubbles. One of the things that I've heard from other guests is that technology is something that's keeping inflation under control as well, that um, all of the advances, the dematerialization of goods, um, the way services are all going into the cloud also have an effect on keeping interest rates down and that we might have low interest rates for decades to come because of that. It's, it's possible. It's very possible. Inflation is an interesting thing. It's, it's not very well understood. And when I say that, I mean central banks don't really have a good model of how inflation works. So that's a bit problematic. You know, people might have heard of a thing called the Phillips curve, which is an inverse relationship between unemployment uh, levels and inflation. It doesn't seem to work. And then the other thing is, you know, it seems to work in regimes. You know, it seems to work in, you know, long, long, you know, decadal and, and longer swings. And we've been in a deflationary world, say, for 40 years. And it feels completely unrealistic that anything could change given the one direction things have been heading in for 40 years. What, what I think happens in human behaviour in general, but certainly in economics and financial economics, financial market economics, is expectations are formed and then they drive prices for long periods of time in a regime and then something breaks the regime and then you get these big change points. It's entirely possible that's happened. But let me paint a different picture, which is we had the, the biggest financial crisis in 100 years and we didn't just spring back to life after that. We had actual fiscal austerity in big economies that mattered all the way through to the Trump tax cuts late in the decade. So we had fiscal austerity in the middle of the recovery of a global financial crisis, not that helpful. Then you had the Europeans really shake confidence with the Eurozone crisis through to 2012. Then you had the Chinese wanting to tighten policy. That transition has happened, but it was very disruptive on the way through. And you had to correct for a whole lot of bad lending in China on, on the way through. And then you get a couple of years of, you know, it feels okay. I mean, you know, things are back to normal. 16, 17, followed by global trade war, global pandemic. So it ain't, I mean, people mustn't assume that we're in some baseline normal. We ain't normal here, folks. <laughs> this is pretty weird. And so what is, what is assumed about this is, oh, well, the, the, the low rates and low inflation of this extended period of time, they're normal. They're, they're, they're here to stay. They're f- fine, whatever. Hang on, but let's just rewind those causal factors. Eurozone crisis over, China tightening over. Global trade war over as of January 20, and coronavirus will be over in about a year because we will have, I mean, we will have very widespread vaccine. And we have these massive government deficits now as well. So there's every chance we do get inflation. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, this is why I was just trying to get to the point is that you're, um, you're saying that it's like a coiled spring. All of these forces are coiling up this spring with all this kinetic energy, uh, which will be released in the form of higher interest rates and higher interest rates are not good for stock markets. Is that correct? Well, the rate question, the rate question is really interesting, Phil, because I think basically the big central banks around the world are telling you, yeah, we're actually pretty cool with manipulating rates. So the behavior is saying we can buy rates along the curve wherever we want. And their language is saying we're very happy to tolerate higher than target inflation. You know, this symmetrical targeting regime that the, that the Yanks are talking about is to say, like, you know, we've had a whole lot of time under two, our targets too. So we're, we're very happy to take a whole lot of time over two because otherwise people's expectation will anchor to a rate lower than two and we want them to anchor to two. I don't know if that makes any sense. But you use the word expectations a lot. It's basically what economics is. Expectations. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you use that word. Yeah. It's basically what a price is, right? I mean, think about buying a house. It's such a consequential thing. You know, if you buy a gumball, you probably don't care. But if you buy a house, if you stump up and bid on that house, you're actually making a statement about your expectations of your own and the area you live in and the society and all that. You're making a statement about it. It's future. It's nothing to do with the past. It doesn't matter what the house next door sold for. It matters what this one sold for because you bought it and you owe the money. What you're stating is that I'm confident about my ability to repay that loan. I'm confident that the value of the house will go up. I'm confident that credit will remain available should I require it for refinancing, et cetera. All those things are embedded in the, in the price. And so, yeah, that's why I refer to it so much. Mm. So, but just back to this rates versus inflation fill. That's even another factor to expect inflation to be not even just tolerated. It's actually being welcomed by central banks Mm -hmm. in a total reversal of what independent central banking has been all about for its history, which has been about inflation targeting. Because remember, the whole genesis of how central banks work was that we had very spendthrift politicians who couldn't be trusted. And so we needed a central bank to offset the largesse of elected officials. For the last 10 years, central banks all over the world have been begging elected officials to spend money. And they're saying, we will be tolerant of higher than target inflation. And they're saying, look at our toolkit, guys. We can buy bonds. We can buy corporate bonds. We can buy sovereign bonds. We can buy them in all maturities. We can put unbelievable amounts of liquidity into the banking system anytime we want. You know, what may worry? You know, it's like the <laughs> mad, mad Magazine thing. And that is the way out for central banks, is inflation. And there's this sort of mystery about inflation and what it is. But let me demonstrate with a crude example. If a monopolist puts a price up, the price stays up. If it puts it up repeatedly over time, that's inflation. And so what you know, the entire machinery of financial governance is pointing toward is higher inflation. Now, there's, there's reasons why it might not happen These are all contingent on what people do in the future around policy, et cetera, et cetera. But the way it looks right now, it looks pretty likely, pretty possible. Now, will that be some sort of runaway inflation like the 70s? No, we have this hugely financialized system. So even the hint of significantly higher rates has a much bigger proportional effect. Just think about household debt now versus in 75. You know, you had to put a suit on and clean your teeth and whatever to go and get a loan you know, polish your shoes and act like a good boy or girl to go and get a loan. 
that's a bit different now. So we just got massively higher debt all through the system and much greater sensitivity to rates, which will adjust to inflation at some point, maybe with a lag. It's just that that lag might be pretty significant and help reinforce that inflationary dynamic early on. So are you feeling positive for markets in the new year? No, um, I feel cautious about markets. Okay, so I just want to go back to the point when we first started talking today. You you were mentioning that um, people should be positioning themselves for some sort of, well, not necessarily a correction or bad times, but you feel that markets are in a bubble, I'm assuming, and that you should be putting some of your money into some sort of position to protect your capital. Is that the case? Yes. I mean, the main part is don't... I mean, have a little bit if you want. If you want to play, have a, have a flutter, fine, whatever. But don't own the heat. Everyone who lived through 2000, and I did sort of peripherally, I was pretty young. That was the, the, the tech, tech bubble uh, crash. Yeah. yeah. Everyone knew we wouldn't see another regime like that, another situation like that, because it was so crazy. Mm. Everyone who I listened to or have the privilege to talk to who lived through that, invested through that, says this is, this is way crazier. And I just don't know how it ends. Now, if you're just protecting your wealth for the next 20 years, just don't be there. You know, there's, there's not a lot of point being there in any meaningful sense. Certainly don't gear into it, and I wouldn't have too much of my wealth exposed to it. But if you want a little flutter, fine, go for it. I mean, whatever. But do understand that you're in a point of history where market cap to GDP, 10-year average price earnings, next 12 months price earnings, price to book, price to sales, they're basically at 100%, i.e. you've never been here before. Mm. So if you think this is a good time to buy stocks, you're almost definitely wrong. That's what that probability means. We've never been this expensive on a whole bunch of measures. There are wrinkles around that because relative to interest rates, you know, maybe it's fine. But what have we just been saying about inflation? One must be cautious. That said, what is interesting about this is that the relativity of a whole bunch of assets that are cheap relative to things that are expensive have never been more extreme. So Europe's at an all-time low versus the States. Japan's at an all-time low versus the States. These are equity markets. China is just off its lows of all-time relative to the States, but very close. All of emerging markets, which is dominated by China, to be honest, but that is very close to all-time lows versus the States. Uh, materials and energy versus the state's all-time lows, grains versus equities, all-time lows. And what have we been saying about inflation? There's a very strong chance that it might, I think, might reassert itself. So there are lots of things to do if you're so inclined. I'd be very happy owning a whole basket of assets along those lines that I just said over, say, five years. Mm. I I think that's going to make good money. Over one year, maybe because if things sell off, correlations all go to one. If everybody has to get out, they have to get out, you know, a bit like we saw in, in March. Can anyone predict that? No. And, and the thing about this that I think maybe isn't very well understood is that these are non-deterministic processes and lots of life is non-deterministic. What I mean by that is it is not the case that if we just had a bit more information, we could work out exactly what will happen in the future. We just need a bit more information today. We can get a better picture but we, it is non-determinate. It is strictly non-deterministic stuff. So it is, you know, like subatomic particles, or you know, things called Penrose tiles, or you know, there's, there's all these instances of these things in real-world events that are non-deterministic. So for a given state, I can't know the future state, 
That is absolutely true of financial markets. They're chaotic systems with billions of interactions. So what can we know? We can know the state of the system and likely outcomes. And the state of the system from like the 100th percentile evaluation, the likely outcome is bad. Yeah, and it's interesting, though, that um, a lot of the time we're counselling investors to um, stay in for the long term, don't sell off, you know, just take a 5, 10, 20-year view rather than what's going to happen next week. How does this affect people who are now thinking, okay, they've got some money in the equity market, maybe for the first time? Are you saying they should be selling off right now? Yeah, Look, I can't comment on people's individual circumstances nor advise them. No, of course not. We can't be giving financial advice here. But but yeah, as a, as a start point, have plenty of cash. Don't be geared into markets. Do not be geared into markets. Don't borrow to put it into markets because it doesn't look like the right time to do that. The right time to do that was March when there's you know blood in the streets. It's not now. And also do realise if you have a mortgage, you are leveraged long a financial asset. And so you're already geared into a market. So if you've got a mortgage plus you're sticking money into equity markets and you have no cash, you're very leveraged long, right? Your long, your long residential property and your long equities and you've got gearing into it to do it. So people's circumstances must dictate their, their disposition. But I mean, I think people should be cautious and they should have plenty of cash. The most important thing is avoid the heat. You know, avoid the stocks that have gone up tenfold, fivefold, that are trading on huge multiples of revenue, not even earnings. If you've got some of that and it's been good, good, good on you. Just remember to have some cash and don't have all of that be your portfolio. The core thing that people lose sight of always is that there is a baseline. You know, nothing can grow fast in the world lest it become the world. But we all forget that. We all think, oh, wow, this thing is growing so fast. It's so wonderful. Fine. But I would have said the same about Japanese stocks in the 80s. I would have said the same about tech stocks in the late 90s. I would have said the same about Chinese stocks in 2006-7. I would have said the same about mining stocks at about that same time. I would have said the same about tech stocks in 1967. I would have said the same about the Stutz Motor Company in 1928, (laughs) which made the sexiest car on the road, Mm -hmm. the Bearcat. It was a magnificent machine. That company was broke four years later. It was the best auto in the world in 28. So it's the same thing in different clothing each time. And this iteration of it is different, but it shares all the hallmarks, all the hallmarks. In fact, it's a more exaggerated, a more virulent version of that same type of dynamic over time. At this point, I'd like to wish listeners a Merry Christmas. Yeah, yeah, look forward to it with uh, caution, <laughs> not optimism, obviously. Yeah, totally. So just a little bit off topic here, because we've talked about um, in the past the disconnect between economies and markets. Is that still the case? Because, like you say, the Northern Hemisphere locked down. Economies are seriously affected. Yeah, there's a few different disconnects. I mean, one disconnect is temporal. So the current state of an economy isn't really what a market wants to price. They probably want to price the future state of an economy, maybe a year out. Who who knows? It's all suppositional. And so are markets right to be a bit excited about what the world looks like post-COVID? Yeah, they probably are on some level. Trade war over, virus over, also simultaneous restart of economies. So all these economies growing very, very rapidly all at once. You know, that's all pretty exciting. So, yeah, that's fine. What 
doesn't get reflected in that, though, is um, what's the path to that outcome? So if we get some big hiccups with the vaccinations, if we get resistance to uptake of the vaccines, if we get serious distributional bottlenecks and can't get vaccines around fast enough, if we have a situation where, oh, my God, these vaccines work for four months and we can't get enough people vaccinated before the first vaccinations wear off, so we can't get any form of immunity in communities, oh, sugar, we've got a problem. So there's all this risk to these outcomes. That's where the interesting part of market pricing comes in. Markets are never wrong, but they change. They're never wrong because I can go and get the price, right? (laughs) You know, the price is the price. So that's not (laughs) wrong or right. It's just that they change. And so people just need to remember in February, it felt like COVID was a bit of a distraction. It really did. We took it pretty seriously, but even then we were like, oh, yeah, that's... And then by the end of February, it was a global shock of of really unprecedented magnitude, mm. probably going back to the Black Death waves of the 13th, 14th, and 15th century. So that's a pretty good reminder. You know, you can think everything's wonderful and all of a sudden it ain't. So there is a disconnect, but it's because markets are doing a different job than just reflecting what's happening in the economy. They're not doing that job. They're doing the job of assessing the probability of outcomes in the future, and they're different. That said, can I just make another brief comment? There hasn't actually been a disconnect between equity markets and the real economy, because what drove equity markets higher for most of the year were these big platform businesses that do very well out of COVID. Amazon does great out of COVID. You have to stay home and buy stuff online. Fantastic. And look at that versus like energy stocks or shipping stocks or banks or that they're all hopeless for most of the year. So there wasn't a disconnect. What I think gets reflected to people is equity markets up. So therefore, economy must be good. That's not what that means. It's not the way it works, really, is it? No, no, it's not. So, Julian, again, Merry Christmas. And thanks very much for coming on with with a cheery Christmas message for listeners and the, the new year. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's always a delight to talk to you. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Thanks, Julian. Thank you. Shares for Beginners is for informational and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. Thanks to Christopher Soulos for music production with that special Greekalicious flavour. Remember, music always flows, even when the money won't. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com